0: Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogansville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. I'm gonna be continuing in uh, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. And I preached on this back in 2011, so I had really good notes, which allowed me to only have a few hours prep time. And so I read the introduction that I gave to that sermon. This was in central Nebraska in 2011. And I'm not sure what got me thinking about this. Maybe I'd had a Colorado peach that got me thinking about home or Maybe I heard Leonard Skinner's, they call me the breeze and dig those Georgia peaches. I don't know. Something got me thinking about peaches. And so I'm going to read to you what I said to those people in Nebraska. Remember, I'm speaking to Nebraskans. And I said to them, most of you know that I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and raised in the suburbs. Actually, I was born in downtown Atlanta, Georgia Baptist Hospital, raised in East Point. Atlanta is in north-central Georgia, and I said I-75 runs south out of Atlanta through central Georgia and then crosses into central Florida. Along the I-75 corridor, there are two distinct and different types of fruit trees. Central Georgia is known for peaches. Georgia is called the peach state. Just a couple hundred miles south in central Florida is citrus trees, oranges, and grapefruit. Peaches and citrus trees are totally different from one another. And I ask, why in a stretch of just a couple hundred miles do two entirely different fruit trees prevail? And the simple answer is climate. I'm sure soil type plays a role, but climate's the big factor. The climate is right in central Georgia for peaches, but not for oranges. Climate is right in central Florida for oranges, but not for peaches. Uh, So climate is, uh, the right climate is essential for growing any plant, whether fruit, vegetable, or crops. I think we all know that. In the same way, spiritual growth happens best in the right climate. Spiritual growth happens best in the right climate. The right Spiritual climate is essential for spiritual growth. Now, hold on to the right climate thing, and we'll kind of come back to that later. Now, let me ask three questions. Number one What role does God play in your spiritual growth? Number two What role do you play? Number three What role do other believers play? In your spiritual growth? And I'll try to answer these questions as we go along. Uh, This morning, we are studying uh, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, and I've called this sermon simply A Call to Work Out Your Salvation. Now let me read. I'm reading from the New American Standard. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verses 12 to 13 is a two verse unit, all right? They go together, two verse unit. Verse 12 gives the command to work out your salvation. We're going to focus on that quite a bit this morning. Verse 13 states the reason why you are to work out your salvation, or it gives the motivation for working out your salvation. Verse 12 begins, So then, my beloved, so then, my beloved, And it's true that the Philippians and all believers are beloved by God, but here, my beloved means those whom Paul dearly loved, and it communicates his deep affection for the Philippians, which, by the way, is a theme throughout the epistle. Verse 12 begins with, so then, so then, in the New American Standard, or therefore in other translations. So then Mark's verses 12 to 13 as a new section, but it also connects with what has gone before. Verses 12 to 13 is part of a long section of practical exhortations that begins all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27, and runs through chapter 2, verse 18. The opening exhortation in this long section of exhortations is found in chapter 1. Verse 27, Jason gave an excellent sermon on that, by the way. It says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The command means live your Christian life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, the gospel that brought you salvation, and live your lives in such a way that the gospel of Christ is furthered and progressed. So it's kind of a dual thing going We live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel and in a manner that furthers the gospel around us. All the exhortations that follow, starting here going all the way through chapter 2, 18, explain the foundational exhortation in some way. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, conduct worthy of the gospel means actively working out your salvation. I catch that. Conduct worthy of the gospel means actively working out your salvation. So then, so then connects verses twelve to thirteen with what has gone before, and most immediately with verses six to eleven. So think about this. And Jason gave excellent sermons on verses six to eleven. So then, in light of what Christ has done. He humbled himself and became obedient to God unto death on the cross. That's verses 6 to 8. And God's subsequent exaltation of him to the place of absolute lordship. That's verses 9 to 11. So you all work out your salvation. Work out your salvation in light of what Jesus Christ has done, his death and exaltation. Now, Verse 12 is a complicated verse, not really to understand, but the way Paul lays it out. So let me simplify the structure. There's a command. Work out your salvation. The command is actually at the end of the verse, but it really is the main component of the verse, so I'm kind of just moving it up, putting it first. The rest of the verse gives the manner in which you are to work out your salvation. One by... Uh, he says, just as you have always obeyed, how do we work out our salvation? With obedience. And second, with fear and trembling. We'll come back to those in just a few minutes. The command work out your salvation. Paul's got a lot of interrelated things going on in the book of Philippians. And this passage is related to chapter 1, verse 6 in some ways. Uh, I think I was out with my coronavirus quarantine when Jason preached through this this part of Philippians, so I'm not sure what he said, but I'm going to give a little bit of exposition. Verse 6, chapter 1, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus i want to say something before we think about that verse a little bit. And I want you to listen to this and let me explain it because it could be easy to misunderstand. I don't want you to misunderstand me. Salvation for a believer has past, present, and future tense. Salvation for a believer has past, present, and future tense. Now, let me explain that. And I'm going to use myself as an example. Are my own example to explain this. September 21st, 1976, I was called to salvation and I placed my faith in Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was born again. I was saved. I was justified. I was reconciled. I was redeemed. I was adopted as God's son. These are all uh, terms the New Testament uses for being saved. So, way back, 44 and a half years ago, I trusted Christ and I was saved. We sometimes, I, I know growing up in Baptist churches, I don't know if this is still a common phrase, but we call that conversion. Does that make sense to you? You got saved. That's past tense. So, think about that. But there's also a future tense to salvation. And one day, Paul referred to it and verse 6 here, we will stand before Christ and we will be perfected. We will be made perfectly like him. Our salvation will be complete. So right now, down here, i got a sin nature. I'm stumbling around quite a bit. There's a day when I will be perfectly like Christ. But from the past to the future, there's that present tense. And I I drew a straight line, which is not accurate for me because for me it's more like this, you know. (laughs) with the ups and downs in the spiritual life, but that's the present tense. We call that sanctification, spiritual growth, things like that. Conversion, glorification, sanctification, and spiritual growth. And Paul has got all three of them going in verse 6. He says, he who began, he who began is the God to whom Paul is giving thanks in verses 3 to 6. He says he began a good work in you. Good work is the work of salvation that God begins in a believer at the moment a believer receives the gospel and places faith in Christ. He refers to the day of Christ. That's future, a future day when every believer will stand before Christ and will be perfected and made perfectly like him. No more sin, no more sin nature, perfectly like Christ in character. And then he says God will be perfecting or completing that work of salvation until the day of Christ. So in verse 6 we see the past, the present, and the future tenses of salvation for a believer. Past, God began, God saved, he calls to be born again, redeemed, reconciled, justified, adopted. These are all things that are past tense for a believer. There's the future, the day of Christ, we'll stand before him, Paul. It has a beautiful picture of uh, that future day in chapter 3, verse 20, and 20. Actually, it's verse 21, but you have to read verse 20 with it. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That waiting is present tense, by the way. And then it talks about the future. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. So, past, present, and future going here in the book of Philippians. The Christian life, conducting yourselves worthy of the gospel, is kind of the present tense of salvation. The command in Philippians 2:12 to work out your salvation focuses on our role in the present tense of salvation, the spiritual growth aspect, the growing in our salvation part of salvation. What does the command to work out your salvation mean? It could be a little bit puzzling. What does that mean? First, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean work to get saved. I'm talking about that past, for a believer, the past tense. Or if you've never trusted Christ, working to get saved. That's not what it means. Got a couple of verses up here. I don't know how well you guys can see that. Maybe I put it too small. But I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says, for by grace, these are one of my favorite verses here, by the way. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation is by grace, that's God's part, through faith, that's our part. So you've got God and man cooperating to save people. So we have to believe. He says it's not of yourselves. It's not something we do. It's not something we earn. It's a gift of God that we receive. And then he says, not as a result of works, so that no man... May boast. In verse 10, he's talking to believers now, and, and he talks about the present tense. And he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good words, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So that's that living the Christian life. That's living worthy of the gospel. That's working out our salvation. Titus 3, 4, and 5. This is also Paul. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done. Again, here we go. Not what we have done, not on the basis of works, but according to his mercy. So being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And at the end of the verse, verse 80 comes to kind of like the present tense for us. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds or good works. All right, so let me stop here for a minute and ask you, have you had that past tense experience of being saved? Can you say yes at a certain time period? or if you, Maybe you don't know the exact, yes, I trusted Christ for my salvation. I have been saved, born again, justified, redeemed, reconciled, adopted. Can you say that with confidence? And I think the New Testament gives us the ability to have confidence in our salvation. We can know that we have been saved. And I'm talking about that past tense for believers. Have you trusted Christ for your salvation? By grace, you have been saved through faith. If you haven't, after the service, come up and talk to Jason, okay? Or this Jason, they're the elders. Or I'll I'll be happy to talk to you. If you've never trusted Christ, do it today, and you'll never regret it. Right? Amen. All right, so we're back to Philippians 2, 12. Command to work out your salvation does not mean work to get saved. Rather, it's a Christian life verse that emphasizes the present tense of salvation. Work out your salvation is a Christian life verse exhorting us, commanding us to be engaged in our salvation in the present tense. In the command, work out your salvation, You're as plural. Paul places personal responsibility upon each individual believer. Remember, he's talking to believers here who have been saved. He's placing uh, responsibility on each individual believer. But I don't want you to miss the corporate context of the command. Philippians is a very corporate book. He's talking about a body of believers. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Each one of you, work out your own salvation as you live your lives corporately together in Christ. Work out, Paul says. There's the command, work out. Paul loves compound words. Uh, We have compound words in English as well, but he loved compound words. And here he uses a word that's a combination of the common Greek verb to work with an intensifying prefix. So what it means is not just work, but work out. Work to completion. Achieve something by hard work. So he's putting an emphasis on the need for work here. The verb translated work out was a common agricultural word in Paul's day. It was used to describe the cultivation of fields for crops. I think that's a good illustration of what Paul is saying here. He's already said in chapter 1, 11, that we are to be filled with the fruit or the crop of righteousness. Um, It's a common metaphor here. Uh, I think he's talking about cultivating our spiritual lives to bring forth the fruits of salvation. And being fruitful in the Christian life is, is hard work. You don't just come sitting in the lazy boy. Christian life takes effort. Takes effort. Paul is calling each one of us to apply continuous, sustained, strenuous effort to our spiritual lives so that we are growing in our salvation. In chapter 3, Paul's got a wonderful description of this same process, but using a different metaphor. And I'm going to read that to you. Um, Verse 8, verse 9 rather, Paul talks about being saved through faith in Christ. So don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's talking about a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Although the book of Philippians doesn't really focus so much on the doctrine of salvation. There it is for you. It's more of a Christian life book, down to verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained or have already become perfect, but I press on. There's that key word, press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so by working out your salvation and pressing on, Paul's talking about the same thing, just using different metaphors. He's talking about applying strenuous, continuous effort to our spiritual life, so that we can grow in salvation and have the fruit of salvation. 1 Peter 2.2 two. two Paul says this, "Like like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. It means the same thing as what Paul means by working out your salvation. So we have the command, work out your salvation, and the rest of the verse gives us the manner, I call it, the manner in which we do that. How are we to work out our salvation? How does this work? That's a complicated question, but Paul does two things here. He says, obediently with fear and trembling. First, we work out our salvation with obedience. He talks about that at the beginning of verse 12. Obey connects back to verse 8 and the example of Christ. Just as Christ obeyed God, so you now obey God. By working out your salvation. Working out our salvation is a matter of obedience. To not continuously apply diligent effort to our spiritual lives is disobedience, by the way. Second, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling is an Old Testament phrase that refers to the fear of the Lord that every believer should have. And I define the fear of the Lord kind of simply as reverential awe for God and who he is. Reverential awe for God and who he is. I always like that verse in in Psalm 86, where David prays, Unite my heart that I might fear you. That's a good prayer for all of us. Unite my heart that I might fear you. So, Fear and trembling motivates us to obey the command to work out our salvation. We obey the command to work out our salvation with a healthy, reverential awe for who God is with fear and trembling. Now, that's verse 12. We'll do verse 13 a little bit quickly, quicker. Uh, verse 13 gives the reason, or you could say the motivation, the reason why we are to obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let me read that. So work out your salvation, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The verse begins with four. Paul often begins verses with that little conjunction, four. It tells us that verse 13 gives the reason why we are to obediently work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is already at work in you. Verse 12, the focus is on our responsibility in spiritual growth. In verse 13, the emphasis is on God's work in us, which is the basis for our effort. It is God who is work at work in you, he says. Compare that to uh, chapter 1, verse 6, where he says he he, he who began a good work in you will be completing it, perfecting it, till the day of Christ Jesus. Here he says that God is at work in you. Paul has the theme of work going on. Chapter 1, verse 6, God began a good work in you. Chapter 2, verse 13, God is working in you to work. He uses the word twice there. So, verse 12, work out your salvation. God is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's work in us first produces the will to work out our salvation. The will, the resolve, the desire, you might say, to grow spiritually. The very will and desire to grow spiritually comes from God's work in us, and God working in us also produces the very work, the ability, the energy necessary to work out our salvation. Here's a paraphrase, and uh, I've just kind of expanded the translation a little bit. And I said, God is the one who is working in you both to produce both the will to work out your salvation and also the work necessary for working out your salvation. God is working in you already. If you're a believer, he is working in you. So cooperate with him and work out your salvation. Now I'm going to close with some practical thoughts. Now I'm going to come back to peaches in central Georgia. Peaches and oranges Both are excellent fruits, right? Anybody here not like peaches and oranges? But they both require the right climate for long-term healthy growth and production, right? Spiritual growth also takes place best in the right climate. And the right climate, I think I have it up here, yes, the right climate, For long-term spiritual growth is the fellowship of a healthy local church. I've been a believer 44 and a half years and have been in church that whole time. And I'm going to tell you, without hesitancy, the right climate for long-term spiritual growth is a healthy fellowship of believers, a local church. And you guys are here this morning, so I commend you coronavirus did so much damage to many people's spiritual lives because it isolated them from one another. And spiritual growth means being together as a body of Christ. Very very essential. You know what? And being together in a local body, in a local fellowship, is not only necessary for my spiritual growth, but my being here. All right, let me rephrase it. My being here is essential for my spiritual growth, but my being here, whether you know it or not, is also essential for your spiritual growth. Not that I'm, because I'm preaching, but that's the way it works with all of us. We all play a role in one another's spiritual lives and spiritual growth. You try isolating for a year and a half, and you can grow spiritually sitting at home by yourself, but it ain't the way God planned it, all right? It's not the way... God planned it and commanded it, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And your active involvement in the fellowship of a local church is essential for your spiritual growth and for the spiritual growth of others who attend. Very important. It all interacts together. We stimulate one another here. The writer Hebrew Hebrews says to love and good deeds, but we could say we stimulate one another to work out our salvation. We stimulate one another to grow spiritually. It's absolutely essential to ongoing, long-term spiritual growth. Now, back to my three questions. Number one, what role does God play in your spiritual growth. And I want to say to you that the Christian life starts and finishes with God giving his people both the will and the ability to live it. Without God's work in our lives, we're not going to grow spiritually. We can't make ourselves become like Christ. We can't make ourselves righteous or holy. The Christian life cannot be lived apart from God's active involvement. Second, what is your role in your own spiritual growth? We have the responsibility to apply diligent effort to our spiritual lives, or as Paul puts it in verse 12, to work out our salvation. Chapter 3, he uses the metaphor pressing on. That's a very active concept, pressing on in our spiritual growth. The Christian life cannot be lived without the active cooperation of the believer with God. Can't do it. Got to cooperate with God. He's got to be the one working in us, and we cooperate with Him as He grows us spiritually. Practically speaking, what does it mean? Does this mean on a daily basis, right? How do we work out our salvation? How do we apply that diligent effort daily? And it's very basic. There's nothing profound here. Very simple. Engage in regular confession of sin. That pretty much needs to be up at the top. Personal confession of sin cultivates our hearts, enabling it to be productive soil. Unconfessed sin leads to bad, unproductive soil. So I'm a terrible sinner, and I... I'm all the time confessing sin privately to God. I'm just telling you, it really is kind of one of the essentials to a healthy Christian life. So engage in regular confession of sin. Be active and regular in corporate worship, as most of you are. Every day, worship God and pray to him. Not just worshiping on Sunday morning, but worshiping God as you go. Praying however you do your prayer life, praying. be in God's word and humbly strive to build God's word into your life and most importantly to obey it. Regularly fellowship with other believers to give and receive help and encouragement, engage in service to others and be outreach minded toward others. Apply constant, diligent effort to these things and you will be cooperating with God as he completes his good work in you. Apart from that constant effort, there will not be growth. In fact, we will stagnate and even begin to decline. That's why Paul commands us to be continually working out our salvation. And the third question, what role do other believers play in your spiritual growth? And I think I've hit this. They play a huge role. We grow together as we hold each other accountable and encourage and stimulate one another. So my presence is good not only for me, but for everyone else here, and John's presence here, wish you weren't moving, (laughs) just throwing it out there, but I'm happy for you. John's presence here is not only good for him, but for everybody else who's here, right? All right, so the right climate for long-term spiritual growth is the fellowship of a healthy, local church, the Christian life cannot be lived on a long-term basis in isolation from other believers. Let me close with two summary statements, and these are pretty self-evident, pretty summarizing what I've said. Number one, the Christian life is a lifelong, cooperative process between God and the believer, lived out in fellowship with other believers. Very basic. Second, living a Christian life that's constantly growing and bearing the fruits of salvation is conduct that is worthy of the gospel. It furthers the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you as a God who began a good work in my life and everyone here who is a believer. You began a good work in us. And we have the promise, we can have the confidence that you are going to perfect that work in your time and in your way you're growing each one of us as believers in Christ help us to be active in working out our salvation help us Lord every day may your indwelling Holy Spirit remind us daily throughout the day to practice the disciplines of the faith and we can have the confidence that we will grow spiritually. And any of you guys, if you've never trusted Christ, I just want to say again, please see Jason, either Jason, after the service, if you have any questions about that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from numbers 6:24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.